please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word? The reading for today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, through chapter, three, chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, the text will be on the screen as I read. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. I was reminded that I forgot to do this last week. So kids in preschool and kindergarten, first grade, you're dismissed uh, to go to your classrooms or go to children's church. Reminder to parents, either right before or right after you take communion, uh, go ahead and pick your kids up and bring them back in for the second half of the service. I haven't said that for a year and a half, so that's why I forgot last week. If you're new, my name is Brian. I'm the pastor here at Trinity City Church. Welcome you uh, if you're in this space or if you are tuning in at home. If you're new and you're tuning in at home, uh, one of the ways we do kind of the online experience is we do the live stream for the first half of uh, our service, our liturgy and the service of the word. But once the sermon is over, we uh, wrap up the live stream and go to the service of the table. And then those that are here in person take communion. And so if you're still home and uh, not comfortable yet coming into um, these in-person gatherings, we'd love to take communion to you uh, because communion is meant to be communal. It's meant to be in this embodied experience in community, and we want that to occur for, for everybody. Um, we are in a sermon series that we just launched last week. The sermon series is called A Wonderful Life. And uh, I mentioned that you could go online and you can see the specifics, but I want to highlight the 10 weeks uh, that we're in the midst of and where things are going. Last week on September 12th, we started with God. That's always a good place to start and how he is our highest good. He's our ultimate satisfaction and how everything... Um, that we're meant for is to be satisfied in him alone. And then in this foundational sense from uh, last week to October 3rd, we're building a theological foundation for what a wonderful life is. And uh, today's sermon is called Created with Purpose. Next week we're 
I'm going to have a sermon about ruined by sin and uh, October 3rd, the good news of restoration. If some of you are familiar with some basic Christian theology, what you would see there is what theologians call the story of creation, fall, redemption. And that's the, the foundation for a wonderful life. And then the next half of the series from October 10th, uh, that gets us into the middle of November, we take that foundation of a wonderful life and start applying it to different areas of your life. Because if God's the center of your life, that means nothing's off limits in terms of his glory impacting different areas of life. So the mission of restoration is about the church. We're going to look at uh, the restoration of relationships of work, culture, and public life. And these are all examples of how the good news of Jesus Christ, the restoration of all things, impacts specific areas of life. And then November 21st will be the last uh, sermon, uh, and that will conclude where the Bible concludes with Genesis, uh, Revelation rather 21 and the restoration of all things, when all things are restored for the glory of Christ. So that's the sermon series in a nutshell. That's what we have to look forward to. As I mentioned each week, just so that you know who's influencing, who's the voice kind of behind this sermon series. There's a lot of different voices, but it's really dominated by a mentor of mine who, who uh, existed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, named Herman Bovink. I talked to, about him a little bit more in detail on an interview I did uh, for our website, so go check that out. But I just preference him because his voice is just very dominant behind this sermon series, so FYI. so. I'm not accused of plagiarism. There you go. That's what's going on. Let's go ahead and pray and dive into this message created with purpose. Let's pray. God of mercy, you promised never to break your covenant, your promises with us and for us. So amid all the changing words of our generation, all the things that we cannot rely on, we ask you, Lord, to speak your eternal word that never changes into our hearts. Speak that into our hearts, Lord. And enable us, Lord, through your spirit to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be truly human? In scripture, to answer that question, you have to go back to the beginning. But let me set this up with an illustration of why this is such an important question to ask and to answer and how we're gonna go about doing that. As many of you know, I never, uh, the city life thing is something that I love, but I never grew up in the city. I was from a rural context in southern Minnesota. I grew up on a farm and I was the youngest in my family of two older brothers and actually a lot of older cousins too. I was the, on the younger end of things uh, with the extended family tree as well. And what this uh, typically meant is my entire extended family was uh, essentially a, a part of this farming life. And, and so I was also brought into it and I would help my dad who raised hogs. I would help my uncle who did milk cows. I, I would help my um, other uncle who kind of did the crops and took care of that. I would help all these folks, but I especially have memories of uh, helping my grandfather. This would be my mom's dad, and he owned the farm. He inherited it from his dad. He was the owner, and all the uncles and my dad 
were kind of part of this ecosystem of farm life. And so I often would help my grandfather as a young, young boy to do chores and to do things on the farm. And I was awful at it. I was not in my element in this, this place. You think I would be because I grew up in this setting. My brothers grew up in this setting. And they, they were quite good at it, but, but I was not. I used to drive my grandfather nuts because I was so bad at helping in this context. Um, my brothers were great, I was bad. And my, my brothers, they loved to be outside, they loved to do things, they loved to build things and to, to learn about tools and making things. Meanwhile, I was the kid that was inside uh, working on my pale tan and just reading books. And I remember writing books like as early as like third, fourth grade, I would just write books for fun. This is what I was doing while uh, the rest of the family was outside. But once in a while, my grandfather would say, all right, you gotta come out, you gotta, you gotta learn how to do some things here. And, and he would pay me and I would help on the farm. And it was just such a frustrating experience for him. I just like, even right now, all I can see is just his disapproval, just like shaking his head at this rookie that just does not know what he's doing. He would often send me to this, this specific shed on the farm that had all these tools in it to, to get something. And he just would always assume that, just like my older brothers, they, they, that I would know what it was. So he'd be like, go and get this tool. And I would just confidently go but lose confidence as soon as I would get in that space because I would look around and be like, I have no idea what he asked me to get. And so I would just guess and bring like a handful of things back and he would just be so upset. He's like, no, a hammer. I was just like, I don't know what that is. Like, I got you a shovel. That's, can, you can use that to hammer things, right? I just, I had no idea and I was a, I was a bit of a rookie. Uh, I, I honestly just like, he probably never thought of this, like he could legit have sat me down for like a tool orientation, just like a two week training, just to like, give me, bring me up to speed on things. Uh, the other thing that I would do, because I was a bit of a dreamer, um, and I would be given a task with like my cousins, and he would go off, my grandfather would go off and do some other things, and then I would just like start dreaming. And I remember having like so many memories of pretending, <laughs> pretending the farm was a city. So I was already knew I was out of my element to the beginning. I would pretend it was a city. Me and my cousins, we were superheroes. And so we left the task, this, you know, this like ordinary work because the city needed to be saved. The dinosaurs were taking over, right? And so I had to go and I just have these memories of not only staying on task, but then like stuff like, you know, the dinosaur is in that shed and we need to take these grenades, these rocks, and launch them into the windows uh, so that we can save, you know, the city from these dinosaurs. And my grandfather would bust us not on task and, and breaking windows on the farm and he would then just switch us to like, like discipline chores, like just things like, like that we were being punished for. So he'd be like, go and move this pile of hay 10 feet over here. It didn't need to be moved. We just needed something to do and to focus on. And so that's what uh, would happen. We didn't stay on task. We often broke rules and, um, and we would often be punished for this at the end of the day. 
One of the things I think about like with this memory is like I joked about like kind of this idea of orientation, a training about what tools are, but that honestly would help. It's just to kind of because I was a dreamer, right? Like what is the big purpose like of this 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 area and this farm? Like who owns the farm and what what are you planning to do with it? What's your what's your kind of big dream? Uh, and and my grandpa would never do like a whiteboard session, but that's kind of like what I would have really related to. And then asking like, well, what's my responsibility here? What, what are you asking me to do? And uh, as you heard with the uh, rock grenade incident, I would also need to know what are the rules here uh, so I don't do more harm than good. When we think about the foundation of scripture, these are the types of questions that apply to us right now. What are the rules? Who owns this place? And what am I doing here? And when we go to the foundation of Scripture back to Genesis 1, that's exactly what we see is that these questions are answered and they define a lot about what it means to be human beings in the here and now. So we're going to ask those questions in this sermon. Who owns this place, creation itself? Why are we here and what are the rules? So let's start with that first question. Who owns this place? Genesis 1.1 begins, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. So before there was anything, there was God. God always existed and will always continue to exist. He has no beginning and no end because he's eternal. This is some uh, conversation I remember having at night with my kids because, like, again, you start with, where did God come from? How did he get here? But in the beginning, what we start with is God. Next week, by the way, we'll talk about sin and the world, so we'll explain what's going on outside, okay? But this week is about the foundations and the purpose of creation. So God was there. He always exist, existed, will always continue to exist. He has no beginning or end because he is eternal. And why did he create? Before there was anything, there is God, but now there's something, and there's us, and there's a creation. So why did he do that? Let me first share two reasons why he didn't do it. One, he didn't do it because he wasn't in control. Creation didn't just erupt because God couldn't stop it from happening. God willed creation to take place, and it pleased him to take place. No one forced God create or compelled his hand. He did it from his own goodwill. Secondly, God didn't create because he was lonely. Creation didn't happen because God lacked something like love or companionship that he needed to have fulfilled in his life, so he created us. God is who he is. He is the one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so before anything else was on the scene, God still had full love and satisfying fellowship within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He had no God-shaped hole in his heart that needed to be uh, satisfied with creation. He was always eternally satisfied. He knew that he was the highest good. So why? Why did God create? Well, the Bible says that God willed it to happen according to his own counsel. Ephesians 1.11 says that God works everything. God works everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. 
He does everything because it conforms to the purpose of his will. So creation occurred because God decreed it, he purposed it, he ordained it, however you want to say it, and he did it because it was according to his good pleasure. There's a work in uh, church history that gets the closest to answering this question. It's a work by a Puritan theologian named Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a book called The End for Which God Created the World. You can tell why I gravitate towards stuff like this, because there's farm work and then there's Edwards, right? End for which God created the world. But this is essentially what he does. He tries to illustrate why creation exists when God didn't need it. And he describes God as a fountain of light and knowledge. God is who he is, and since he is an infinite fountain of light and knowledge and holiness and beauty, he then chose to shine forth all those attributes like beams from a sun. God is love, and so he will shine forth love. And God is creator, so he will create. So your existence and the existence of this beautiful world is a willful act of God in which he chose to shine forth his glory through creation and through your existence, which means everything is a gift. Everything is a gift, including your very own existence. As creator, there's a distinction between us and God, between creation and the creator. We are not one of the same but separate, yet this does not mean that God is hands off. God also governs creation. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that God the Father made all things through his Son, yet, quote, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, and here's the key phrase, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God didn't create and then become hands-off. This continued existence of creation in us is due to the will of God who sustains all things by his powerful word. Your creation is dependent on God, and so is your continued existence. Think about this. If at any moment God willed this to just end, we would cease to exist. We would be done. But the fact that we are still here living and breathing and fulfilling God's purposes in this world is a willful choice of God right here, right now, that he is sustaining us even in, that mo- in this moment. And let that sink in, that even this moment and even this experience is an act of grace from the sovereign Lord of all of creation. And since God created all things and continues to govern all things, then we confess that God is both creator and king. He is Lord of all. And this is why Christian, Christians throughout history believe in something called God's providence. What is God's providence? I'm going to restate an answer, I'm going to quote an answer, rather, from a Christian catechism, which says, quote, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. That is 
God's providence. Now, many get tripped up on this belief, this doctrine, because of the reality of sin and suffering and death in the world. Providence does not mean, this has to be crystal clear, it does not mean that God is responsible for sin, but it also means that God didn't lose control over all things when sin entered the world. He is still in charge. He is still ruling. He is still governing, and he's still restoring all things. So providence, even with sin, means that God is in control and that he still cares. He's involved, and he's involved because he cares. God is still accomplishing his purpose to bring his name glory and to restore this broken world. And just to speak personally for a second, I mean, many of you know uh, my, my, my run-in with cancer, that I'm in remission now from stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I will tell you, based on personal testimony, that this is a very sweet doctrine to believe in, in life's worst suffering. When I am going into my PET scans, which happen every four months now, my next one's coming up here in November, this is where my heart goes, is that God cares about whether cancer is going to be discovered again or whether I continue in remission, and he has a purpose for either vocation. It would be a dreadful thing for my heart to feel in that moment that this is all riding on me and my choices and the expertise of the medical community, as much as I appreciate those things, cancer still exists and it's still destructive. And I take so much comfort that God is not hands off when I go into that tube and it starts spinning and either I'm gonna light it up because something activated in my uh, body again, or that I continue on in remission. It is a sweet and comforting thought to know that God's providence is still reigning over that moment. And this leads us to the next question. This leads us to the next um, thing that we need to ask to understand our purpose. Now we understand who's in charge. God is in charge. God created all things for his glory. He's still providentially ruling all things. But then we come to this question, why are we here? Why are we here? And you read all of Genesis 1, we see that God with his power and his word speaks into existence all that is seen and unseen. God says, let there be light. Let there be water and sky, let there be ground, let there be sun and moon and stars, let there be creatures in the sea, and let there be creatures on the land. And he saw everything that he made, and it was good. But then before he wrapped up the sixth day, it says in Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. It's curious, right? There's a plural us and our that shows that God is taking counsel like a king in his royal court. And Christians understandably look at that language and see that scripture is already revealing the complexity of who God is as Trinity. God who is Father, Son, and Spirit created mankind in his image. Male and female, he created them. But what does this mean, image of God? Foundationally, it means that our worth is from God. 
You are not an accident. You're not a, a result of random events. Rather, you are made by God and bear his image. And nothing, because that's where image of God comes from, that's the origin of being created in the image of God, nothing can take that away from you. Nothing. Even when sin enters the world, the image of God remains there. It's still affirmed even on the other side of the fall in Genesis 3. You are still created in God's image, even with the reality of sin in the world. And since God gives this to every single person without exception, then nothing in creation can ever take that from you. And this also means that there's not just one person that gets to have the image of God and the rest of us don't really get it. Everybody gets it, male and female, equally and fully bear the image of God, every single people group, ethnicity, every single person on the face of the earth, even the ones that annoy you this week, they bear the image of God. You can't rule anybody out. You can't take that away. It's not ours to take away from anybody. You can deny it, but it's still there. You can dehumanize people, but that image is still there because God granted it, and it will never, ever be taken away from them. That's the origin of where it came from. But what's the essence? What does it mean? Image of God. The word likeness is a clue. clue. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. In some sense, we're created to mirror God. You are, declare, you are declaring, because you have the image of God, God's glory right now, just by virtue of having this image. Bearing God's image means that we are like him, even though he is holy and set apart, that we are related to him, even though as human beings we are far beneath him. We are unique from all of creation. We are rational beings who think and reason and pursue truth. Philosophy starts with the popular phrase, I think, therefore I am. Christianity starts with, you are, therefore you think. That's why, because you exist and God made you to exist. You are a moral being who has the ability to discern right from wrong. You are a social being who's able to communicate. You are an artistic being who are able to create and appreciate beauty. You're a relational being who brings flourishing into the community. It is not good for man to be alone. We are made for community. And you're a spiritual being who's able to pursue God, to worship him with body and soul, with all of yourself. So in, this, in these ways and many others, we reflect God's image, but we also represent God by being image bearers. And how do we do that? Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Be fruitful and increase in number. In a specific sense, yes, this is about procreation. Kids, if you don't know what that is, ask the adult next to you. <laughs> Not now, later. In marriage, male and female unite as husband and wife and father and mother and, and become father and mother to any children that their union produces. In a very specific sense, that's what's going on here. But in a broader sense, God is expressing his desire that humanity would fill the earth as another way for his entire creation 
to glorify him. God's purpose is not for one family to dwell in a single garden, but for humanity to grow in this diverse and global community. And we also have these commands, subdue and rule over the earth and rule over every living creature. Some translations that you may have say that men and women have dominion over what is created. So what does that mean? Some people don't like that language because maybe you're thinking in your head, well, what that means is that we pave paradise and put up a parking lot, right? We just, we just do what we want, right? With this creation, we can destroy it and just put in an ugly, nasty parking lot. And you know, based on my political leanings, that I just don't like anything for cars, right? I just want bike lanes, I want to bring back the uh, light rail, like that's my leaning. So I, that's not necessarily what it means, right? That we can do whatever we want. What it means to subdue and rule over the earth is what's known as the cultural mandate. God created out of nothing, but then he organized orders and bring purpose to creation, and then he makes us in his image, and then hands the project off to us. And in that sense, we are co-workers with him to see that creation flourishes. In this sense, and this is something that's sometimes uh, ignored or not known about the doctrine of creation, creation is a work in progress in that sense because God made it to be so. God didn't simply create and say, keep it the way it is. The garden is beautiful. The Garden of Eden is beautiful, but God is asking us to landscape, grow the beauty, and invite others into this space to benefit from us. We are to care for it, but we're also called to keep creating, building, dreaming, and making creation flourish. And so as humanity grows and fills the earth and continues to care for their different gardens throughout the world, the idea is that culture is made, and we benefit from that to this day. One of the most tangible ways to think about it is food, right? You don't just, like from my uh, migrant uh, group, only enjoy lutefisk and lefsa, but there's a very minority of people that actually enjoy that. We have a world full of culture and beauty and goodness. We get Taco Tuesdays and Pizza Fridays or whatever you want because that is an expression of what's being commanded here, that we're taking God's creation and bringing goodness and beauty and satisfaction out of it in the things that we do and the work of our hands. It is in, within this project that we still await the project to be done, and then in that moment, once it's finished, then we enter into rest. Our ultimate destiny is not the garden, but it always has been a new heaven, a new earth. It always has been, where God's glory is our light, the bread of life is our food, and Christ is our forever rest because the project is done and God accomplished everything he wanted to bring his glory into what is made and through us. That's why when you walk into these doors, you see the five practices of Trinity, and one of the practices that's at the bottom of that list, uh, not because it's a hierarchy of listing, but because it's just there, but the, the list goes down to number five being stewardship, that we seek the common good through our vocations, the practice of stewardship. The Holy Spirit in the life of Trinity City Church and the life of God's people equips us to work 
for the Lord Jesus as we fulfill the purpose of making creation flourish. So therefore, you and I have a responsibility to use our talents, our times, our vocations to bring a measure of God's healing to his creation, whether you're constructing buildings, practicing law, mending broken bodies, or nurturing children. We seek to apply this purpose, this mission of God in every single area of life. That's the purpose of that icon there next to stewardship. It's this picture of these, picture these different areas of life that are all centered around the Lord Jesus Christ and his purposes for you to love God, to love your neighbors, especially through your ordinary daily vocations of every single week. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about the restoration of work in several weeks. But here's the reality with that call. We may have dominion or stewardship over all creation, but that does not mean we get to do whatever we want. And we get to the third and final question. What are the rules? What are the rules? In Genesis 15 through 17, it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and care for it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. So God's commands, his law includes things to do and also not to do. God says, look, you're free to eat from any tree, any tree, go nuts except for one. And then that we're commanded to do a lot. There's a lot of things that we can do. It reminds me of Galatians 5, through 23, where Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. I love that phrase. All these things, no law, no rules. In a sense, yes, God commands us to have joy, bring peace, and to practice self-control. But this is Paul's way of saying, go nuts on these things. Do as much as you want. This isn't like ice cream where you're going to eat so much you're going to get sick. You can go nuts, indulge all you want in these things, these commands of God to love and joy and peace and forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. God commands us to do those things. And in that sense, there's no holdback. There's no regulations, right? There's no bunch of red tape behind that. It's just go nuts, go crazy on those things. But in addition... Some things are still forbidden. God also says, of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, do not eat. This is off limits. This is something you are not to do. God's law commands to do and not to do. And so here, even in the garden, there is this one tree, and God says, don't eat it. Don't do it. And here's the consequence, or you will die. Here we have the basic aspects of God's law. Do what God asks and you will live. Disobey and you will die. Disobedient, or obedience rather brings life and disobedience brings death. In the, law of, in the law of God, the Lord asks us and tries to remind us of these questions. Who is in charge and who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust God or self? Are you going to follow God's ways and his laws or your own ways? Now, before this sounds like some type of strict legalism, let's remember some things. First off, God is our Father. 
our Father in heaven. And one of the things I am always sensitive to, even with that phrase, is that not all of you grew up in a household where your parents were good, where they hit it out of the park. Or even worse than that, you did not even flourish in that space. So even that category makes you a little defensive and it might be triggering. Because maybe you grew up with a parenting style that was really strict and legalistic and there was no warmth or kindness or love. Or maybe you grew up in a household where there was a friend in your house that was really warm but never gave you any guidance, never gave you any boundaries, never gave you any purpose. Or maybe you even grew up in a household where they were completely passive. They weren't your friend and they weren't an authority figure in your life. They just were not engaged. God the Father is like none of those examples. None of those examples. And if you have never experienced good parenting or good fathering or good mothering, the good news is that God, our Father in heaven, is the one who perfectly balances both guidance, purpose, authority through his law, but also exhibits complete and eternal love, warmth, humility, care, and support for you in those endeavors. He's both, and he's perfectly good at each of those things. So that's where the law and the rules are coming from, is a good, good father who loves you and is trying to give you guidance towards life so that you don't go this direction towards death. This law is given in order to grow fellowship with God, to love our neighbors, and to bring life to the world. These ways come from the Lord, the King and the Creator, who gives life, creates, and guides us with this promise. And the law is always grounded in this promise, where God says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. We start from a different starting point in American culture. We have so exalted individual choice and freedom that it has become an idol. We don't start here in these frameworks. And as much good and common grace there is in the idea of freedom, we have exalted it to a level where it does not always contribute to human flourishing anymore like God's law does. We like to, and this is completely relevant for every different political persuasion. We start with something like my body, my choice because of the idolatry of human choice and human freedom. And it's become a model for every political stripe that's inconsistently applied to different things. Versus the Bible says, what does the Bible say about you and your body? What does it say? That it's God's body and God's temple. And that we start with, what do I get to choose for myself? We start, this is God's, my body, my spirit, my being, my relationship, this creation. It starts with, this is all his. So what does he say that I ought to do? Not what I think will contribute to my individual definition of freedom. Because the reality is, is if you want freedom, and you choose to get it through the idolatry of individual self, you will be enslaved to your own selfish desires. But if you follow and submit to God's law, you will have true freedom. 
you will have life because you are going to obey some type of compass, some type of law, some type of code. And the doctrine of creation continues to remind us that it starts with God, his purposes, his purposes for this world, his purposes for you, and how he has governed this world according to his promises and his laws and his commands. We can understand this. If you go into an athletic field, right, you go into a baseball field and you play the sport according to football, it's going to mess it up. It's going to mess other people up because the rules of the game are there not to restrict fun on the field. It's so that fun and freedom can flourish because you're playing the game the way it's meant to be played. And so, too, we often try to bring different rules, our own rules, to this, this field of creation that God calls us to. And in doing so, in playing things to our own rules, we are making a royal mess out of things. We know that the first Adam, that the first man, rather, Adam, broke God's law and didn't fulfill his task. And next week, we are going to get into the full implications of that reality. But here I want to close with reflecting on this. Adam is our representative. We are united in Adam's sin, both by nature and by choice. And because of his sin, and because of our sin, there's condemnation and death, and this world isn't what it's meant to be. And we dehumanize one another, and we destroy God's purposes. We and our calling to be human are now under constant threat by sin, death, and evil. We fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news from Romans 5:17: For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, talking about Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. The reality is that most of the world has probably preached to you this week about your identity in Adam. You're a sinner. You're not doing everything right. You can do more. You can be better. You need to be angry at other people. You need to make enemies out of different image bearers. And you're getting hit throughout the week with that narrative. And it's a narrative that's consumed and reminding you that your identity is in Adam. But the gospel comes and says, no. Jesus came as the true and better Adam, not to bring death, but to bring life, to restore the image of God. And so the Christian faith isn't all about like, well, this is how I can fulfill my individual dreams of what, my, what I think my goals are. No, 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 no. When God in Christ restores and renews our image, he does it in its truly full sense that we in Christ become truly human. You don't become this like weird, just spiritual, head in the clouds person when you get united with Christ. Because he is the true and better Adam, he brings life and he, he restores you to your true humanity and he gives you eyes to see the beauty of this creation. God owns it and we have a task to do and when we follow his call and his commandments, we truly will have fellowship with him, love our neighbor, and then bring life to the world. Weary saints, 
That is the good news today. You are not defined by Adam, but the true and better Adam in Jesus Christ.